understand to fly. I'm not that naive. I'm just out to find the better part of me. I'm more than a bird. I'm more than a plane. I'm more than some pretty face beside a train, and it's not easy. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, today is Ascension Day. It is also, yeah, it's our Ascension Day. It's also bringing on the summer. You know, this is our early Memorial Day weekend episode. And you were going to Hoagie Fest. Going to Hoagie Fest, yeah. Hall and Oaks, Tears for Fears. Pretty excited. By the way, I'll talk to you about anything today, but don't you dare ask me my opinion about the CBO report or I'll come after you. Well, now it's like, why, why would I not ask you about that? Like, what would, uh, I'm just, uh, we're all just basking in the glow of uh, the special Montana congregational, or congregational. Yeah. See there, well, that was Freudian, the con- congressional election there. But uh, I never had anyone body slam me at a congregational meeting. No, I haven't either. Yeah, a couple of people I wanted to do that too, but I never, not, not really, just. It's interesting, like pro wrestling. Is, I used to love pro wrestling as a kid. I kind of don't. There's actually pro wrestling locally somewhere here in Bucks County coming up soon, like a live pro wrestling event. Yeah. Well, you know, I watched it as a kid way ago. And then my when it kind of made a resurgence, my sons would watch it. So I get, when, the, when The Rock was, uh, that was the, he was their favorite. That's when he rose to fame. And now he could be. The President Rock. <laughs> you and Dave French agree on this. David French wrote a column for the National Review, Why America Needs Dwayne Johnson. And he thinks Dwayne Johnson is a salutary example of the kind of character we need in America right yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trump's all talk, but the, the Rock could follow it up. <laughs> yeah. The Rock, he is saying. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. My on one, this Rock, I will build my country. My one son supported The Rock for president in the last election. Well, no, By support, you mean rode him in? Or? No, he didn't write him in. We joked about it. No, he, he was another bore against Trump. But uh, <laughs> oh There's many. There are many. <laughs> well, the tribe is growing. The tribe yeah, is growing. It's, it's, uh... But it is Ascension Day and uh, probably a very important and underappreciated holy day. It's not appreciated because it's not co-optable. You can't, there's no like Santa Claus. There's no Easter Bunny. <laughs> there's no, I mean, maybe you could make it a travel holiday. Like, Leaving on a jet plane. (laughs) Oh, let's celebrate Abe, the Ascension Angel. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) No, but a very important doctrine in Calvinism for John Calvin. It was was, uh, arguably, well, you could say some of the Greek Orthodox fathers certainly talk about Ascension. Um, But uh, there's probably no other Protestant thinker who, who cared more about Ascension and and saw its importance than John Calvin. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. Yeah, and... Um, Doug Farrow wrote a great book on it, on Ascension and Ecclesia. He's not as prominent as Calvin, but and he's Canadian, so... Well, when you were talking to me about this, we, you said we were going to talk about the humanity of God. Now, I usually, when I think about the humanity of God, I think primarily of the doctrine of the Incarnation. Now, again, I'm not saying the Ascension is disconnected from that, but tell me why you, you were excited last night about this topic. Yeah, I think that, like, because without the Ascension, the Incarnation could just be an epiphany. Hmm. It could be something that happened, uh, it, God came, 
tabernacled among us, as John's gospel said, you know, even died and rose again and just ended the project. Like, and so God was touched by the human condition and that could end it. But yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about this morning, God chose in Christ to spend 40 days with us, with the early church, with the early disciples in some mysterious form of presence coming and going before he left to not come again until, you know, the future that we look to and hope. And that's like 40 days. That's the same amount of time that Jesus spent in the wilderness. And 40 years, I mean, 40 is a pretty symbolic number, right? right? So if, right. It's a, if it's a good season of time, the biblical shorthand for it is 40. And so or, why or, 40 or a, or a days? testing. I don't know if it's a good season. I mean, the, the temptations was not good. Well, it doesn't have to be good, it's just, no. but it's significant. Right. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's right. a significant season. Yeah. Um, it's 7, 3, or 40 time-wise. Yeah, yeah, and Sometimes uh, 10, I guess. Moses's life was divided into forties. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I yeah, it's, it is a it is a significant quarantine. It's a very strange, interesting novel, uh, kind of spiritual fiction about a fictitious uh, version of what Jesus was doing during the quarantine. But at any rate, um, so we'll say more about that because I why why is why would it just be an epiphany? What does the ascension say? Well, I, I think it proclaims that forever God is somehow human. And, you know, Bart said the question isn't whether um, God is a person, but whether we are. Yeah. And you could say the question isn't whether God is human, it's whether we are really human. And right. I think it, it kind of, it makes human being forever a part of the divine identity that somehow, and scarred human being. You know, right. when Jesus appears to the disciples, he's got wounds. He, he dies to die no more, but it's not as though there aren't wounds there. So it's the it's the idea of the humanity being taken into the very Godhead, and you know it's it's a different you know I was thinking about this too because even the uh, ascension descension language in Ephesians, for instance, which is kind of a theological discussion, yeah, about maybe the only other place that really talks about it from a theological perspective. I mean, you know, well, not necessarily because is because the exaltation of His Lordship is tied together. I mean, in the Philippians hymn. You know, I think it's not just the resurrection, but him being made Lord. I mean, the, the you know, if you would, the divine descent and humility is capped in every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And that's the idea of what Jesus is exalted. And it's not only a future thing, but in the resurrection ascension as one, you know, as one action of God, Jesus is made Lord. Yeah. And in John, I mean, John who's, you know, the latest canonical gospel, kind of leaves that, folds, you know, everything into the resurrection. The resurrection bestowal of the Spirit. I mean, in Luke-Acts, you have the right. sort of bestowal of the Spirit uh, after the ascension. You know, well, there's the, a holy history kind of breaking yeah. down with, with the Luke-Acts report. By the way, I, I don't know. Uh, I've, you know, it's interesting. I don't know that John has to be the latest. I don't think there's any internal evidence that says it has to be. I mean, well, it doesn't have to. Be. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's different. I think in in you know the kind of the whole historical literary historical approach to to uh, to the New Testament that got that really got kind of placed in you know academic memory that John's the latest one. But uh, you know, since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Johannine language sounds the way that certain Jews were talking in that. Day. Well, there you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> Breaking claims. Yeah, it's funny that. Uh, Colin Gunton of Blessed Memory was working on, he was at the, right before he died, he was at the Center for Theological Inquiry in Princeton. He was presenting his work to the scholars and residents, and they actually, he was making a big deal of the Ascension and the Doctrine of the Spirit, and was really concerned that dogmatics wasn't taking up 
the person of the Holy Spirit seriously enough. So at the end of the presentation, several scholars were like, well, uh, first off, you your work seems dependent on Gordon Fee, a known Pentecostal. That, that disqualified him. <laughs> and, and then second of all, you know, you you actually really privilege the Lucan account, Luke Acts, with you know, where where you have this kind of resurrection, ascension, bestowal of the Spirit. We actually think in the New Testament guild that John is closer to the historical reality that the apostles have in their mindset where resurrection and bestowal of the spirit all in one. And Bruce McCormick, great Bard scholar, says Wow, I never thought I'd hear New Testament scholars cite John as a good historical source. I thought he'd rank up there with Gordon Fee. (laughs) 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 To things I wish I would have said. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, it makes infinite sense to talk to a scholarly Pentecostal about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, no, yeah. And and this book, God's Empowering Presence, is excellent. Now, Gordon Fee, great scholar, great scholar. Um, Now, I was thinking about this, um, going back to the language of Ephesians. Now, we have in mythology, Greek mythology, other mythologies, um, the divinization of humans. We have the best mythologies. <laughs> you know, so what makes the Acts account, the Ephesians story, you know, story of the kind of the, the rise, the ascending and rising of Jesus, uh, how is that different than the divination Myths. Yeah, because I think it's actually not escaping creaturehood. I think it's an embrace. You know, N.T. Ah, Wright yeah. has this great passage in his book *Surprised by Hope*. He said that the embrace to embrace the ascension is to ha- is to heave a sigh of relief, to give up the struggle to be God, and with it the inevitable despair at our constant failure, and to enjoy our status as creatures, image bearing creatures, but creatures nonetheless. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that the continued embodiment of Jesus, it says something about the dignity of being a creature, hmm. that you don't have to be the creator. And I think that at, at the root of human tragedy and sin and brokenness it, is the inability to accept our limits as creatures. And I think that something about the ascension says that creaturehood is dignified enough to receive the divine embrace and for God forever to identify with creatureliness, at yeah. the same time being the creator. Yeah, I, that, that's a that's a powerful uh, uh, quote there. You know, one of the things that strikes me about uh, the ascension is that it kind of carries on. It restores the initial project. You know, just from the human perspective of at least from the, the Greek fathers. I'm thinking of Irenaeus particularly, but this this streams on that the ultimate goal of creation was to be for there to be communion with God and humanity. Yeah, and so. By bringing humanity into the present, the very presence of God, on one dimension, on one in one dimension of that is this idea of our relationships. In other words, you know, uh, I remember one uh, Jewish scholar I studied with that God just can't get the garden thing out of his mind. You know, we we all, Christians often say the garden experiment it fails, and it's over. But you could look at the entire Hebrew scriptures. As God keeps trying to do the garden thing, He's just doing it in different ways. You know, even after Noah, Noah plants a vineyard. You know, Abraham is being promised land, the return to the land, all the stuff around land. Is God's initial vision of being able to walk with humanity in the garden uh, as a symbol of intimacy, of fellowship, of flourishing? That that never, that never, uh, that never leaves. It's in, with that, with some irony. Uh, you know, Jesus' last real heart-to-heart conversation with God takes place in the garden, too, before he's, you know, uh, in Gethsemane. So it's an interesting image. And so this idea of the ascension 
is an affirmation of the initial intent for God to be in this kind of perfect relationship and communion with humanity as humanity. Yeah, and I think actually the garden is meant to give way to the city. I mean, like on some level, you know, it's interesting. If you ended the Bible at, like, if you, if there were only like 12 chapters in the Bible and the first 11 were from Genesis, right? And then you ended it with Revelation 21. What would descend from heaven? A garden. Because the city is always the problem. Right. And yet, like, it's almost like alienated human being can't get the calling to cultivate and to make the garden a city. And it's funny because the city is better than the garden. Because even before the fall, God comes and goes. People have a sense of God's Mm. presence and absence. But in the holy city at the end, there is no temple because God is all in all. You can't escape God's presence. There's something about... So it seems like there's something about the human project of cultivation, like not like needing to make a house at home, needing right. to to take creation and shape it like God takes it and shapes it. It's, it's something about that is at the heart of who we are. And yeah, Jesus sweats in the garden and gets pushed out of the city. And yet to redeem the whole garden to city project. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, another dimension of the ascension, which is central to the book of Hebrews Christology, is the office of Jesus as high priest. Yeah. You know, the fact that there's a human now in the very presence of God. Um, the human, the, the the man, the resurrected man, God-man, Jesus, who uh, serves as, a, as the perfect high priest for the entire world. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what do priests do? I mean, they present the people to God and God to the people. And so he, he literally is the bridge, I mean, yeah. of, of human and divine. Although one thing I always – now, I I don't – I avoid the eye, the imagery of Jesus praying for us before God because in the oneness of God and Jesus, it, to me it's more it's, – it's not that he brings our request. Our requests literally are already there. I mean, this idea there's, I don't think that this, certainly merging John's gospel with this image is that we are in the Father, you know, I am you, you and me, the, the, the you and us. I mean, this idea of us being in Christ and Christ being in the Father means that our very hearts, I mean, that's part of what in Romans 8, we, even if we don't have words to say what our deepest need and longing is, that's already there through the work of the Holy Spirit. So I think there's something about, I know the, some people, you know, and again, there's, you know, biblical choruses, and you've probably all heard sermons about this, but by Jesus' very presence being there and him, us being in Christ, then we already are there as well. Yeah, I mean, Jesus' communion with the Father and the Spirit becomes ours. I mean, there's a part, there's a sense in which that we're taken into that. It's interesting because I think we spend so much of our time as people avoiding complicated relationships and complicated people and people that would problematize. I mean, you think about like times where you... See, what did, I just realized, what does it say about me that I'm attracted to the complicated? Yeah, but the right kind of complicated. I mean, I, like everybody, <laughs> I mean, everybody, some people, like, the thing is that, but even when we're attracted to complicated people, it's often the kind of complicated we like. Okay, like, there's that something that enhances right, our, our, our lives that, like, right. that, but we're all good at, like, avoiding the people that, for some reason, give us anxiety or problematize our reality. Or And you think about, like, times when you're at a party or something, and it's so great, and you just want to call somebody that isn't there because you wish they were there, right? Because it's so good. And also the converse, like if you have a party or gathering and you're like, gosh, I hope this, this is so good. I hope this person doesn't show up because they're going to kill it. And it seems like God's intuition is not that way. And that like the ascension makes an eternal space 
for creatures that are weird and quirky, you know, and, and, and problematic often and, and wounding. It, you know, it, it's really interesting. Marilyn Adams in one of her books, she's a philosopher. Of, it just died. Um, but she said, you know, if you were going to try to look at the natural world and discern something about the creator that was incontestable, you'd have to say God likes diversity, finitude, and fragility. Hmm. And there's something about like <laughs> uh, our fragility and that being taken into the life of God and with, and, and with us, with that, you know, uh, uh, the things that probably, I mean, our own fragility is such a difficult thing to deal with. And everything we care about is so fragile. Everything. Like yeah, it yeah. can be taken away in an instant. Right. Uh, and, 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 is, and yet somehow the message of the gospel is that in this very finitude and fragility is something that God has put his faith. Yeah. You know, by the way, that just reminds me uh, in the New York Times today, there was a video of a guy. Hold- Fake news. <laughs> of a guy holding his own wake. Mm. It's, mm. A, it's, you know, it's beautiful. And uh, I mean, they're, you know, they're having fun. And it's, at some levels, it's a great idea, you know, in terms of being able, we should say the things we really mean, why we could still say them. Mm. But at the end of it, he goes, now I'm sad. It was joking. He says, and I, and, and I invite you into my sadness. Mm. And, and there's part of the humanity of Christ where that God fully took the invitation to come into our sadness. Matter of fact, we didn't maybe know we were inviting it, but all the angry prayers, all the isolated, I'm thinking not even the prayers, but all those desperate moments of isolation, mm. um, of despair, of pain, those moments of ab- absolute terror. I'm thinking how many people's last moments are absolute terror. And again, you know, of course, our, uh, you know, I, I try to, I've, I've, one of the things I've tried to do is to, when there's a terrorist attack, wherever it is, I try to read the names of the victims when they're listed. And if there's pictures, I look at them just as a way of saying, all right, I'm trying not to let this become another just statistic. Hmm. But the idea of, of those moments of absolute, the last moments of absolute terror how that's all incorporated into the humanity of God and somehow taken in, into God. I mean, this really, in some levels, both the incarnation and, and if, in essence, you're you're kind of saying, and obviously, you're not the first person to say this, but the uh, the ascension is the ultimate and logical and necessary culmination of the incarnation. Yeah, it's not an add-on. Yeah, it, it, it's something that that makes the incarnation not some kind of epiphenomenon. That's a fluke in history, but it makes it part of the enduring story and identity of God. There's this great passage in Walter Storff's um, Lament for a Son, which he wrote after his, he's a philosopher, Christian philosopher, was teaching at Yale at the time, and his son died in a tragic rock climbing accident. And this book is his reflections hmm. after, and he says that um, the tears of God are the meaning of history. And then he writes later in that same section, when it, we're in it together, God and we together in the history of our world. The history of our world is the history of our suffering together. Every act of evil extracts a tear from God. Every plunge into anguish extracts a sob from God. But also the history of our world is the history of our deliverance together. God's work to release himself from his suffering is his work to deliver the world from its agony. Our struggle for joy and justice is our struggle to relieve God's sorrow. And I think something about the ascension is what makes those words meaningful, mm. that, that there is forever, that God, uh, for better or worse, is in it with us. We're in it together. You know, we've been, 
you know, kind of talking a lot of language, but, you know, again, we're, we're Christian pastors and theologians, so we talk, you know. If you can believe it. Yeah. <laughs> As those, you know, within the family and fold. I, I'm having this ongoing um, email conversation with uh, someone who's asking really pointed questions about Christianity, uh, and particularly around the issues of Trinity and, and uh, the two natures of Christ. Uh, this person was raised in a theistic tradition, but not Christianity. And um, obviously, we've been spending a good bit of time talking about the Trinity. But the other thing in terms of, uh, you know, and again, she's very, you know, an intelligent person and, and articulates some of the classic questions. You know, in other words, well, why does he have to be God and human? She goes, you know, one level, you know, he could be a prophet because in prophet where the spirit of God comes upon them in powerful ways. Or if he could be a mystic, you know, in terms of his oneness of God could be of the mystical kind. Why do you, as Christians, insist on the fact that he was fully God and fully human? How would you respond to that in non-Christian jargon? I don't mean jargon, but in terms of to speak to someone who's asking this question as someone who does not, is interested in our preconceptions and our beliefs, but has not yet endorsed them, or may never will, but is curious about it. Yeah, I think that like... The doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation and Ascension is not a product of philosophical speculation. Absolutely. It, it, it's yeah. actually the apostles putting to language it, it, the sense that this story, it, it, there's this, this couldn't have been the redemptive event that, we, that they thought now is the center not just of Israel's story but the world, unless it was divine, it, it's, unless the main character was divine. And yet he was human. He was... He was one of us and wasn't. You know, he was like us and different. And so I think that the the idea that he was fully God and fully human is deep reflection on the fact that who the early followers of Jesus met was one that was uh, the the best of both of those realities. That 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 he he was highest in his humility. Like that right. that the divinity was actually more godlike in human form than not. Mm. And I think that that is part of what for people who confess the lordship of Jesus and wind up in Christian churches and singing Christian hymns and breaking bread and sharing the cup and reading from it, the scriptures that Christianity has taken up as as sacred, it, at the heart of it is this that we're not in it alone and that God's incarnation and ascension, ongoing humanity, it makes possible uh, our own humanity. Yeah, I think, you know, we in the West, in many ways, the particularly the Alexandrian school, but the people that won the battles, if you would, of uh, the Trinity and, and Christology, they really wanted to be able to say that somehow God died on the cross. And because, mostly because of Luther and others, that idea has, is alive and well within the Protestant West. I think another equally important idea, at least for our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, is representing the ascension. Not only was God dying on the cross, but humanity was rising with Christ into the very into the very heart of the divine. And so it's not only about divine humility, but it's about the ultimate destiny of humanity to be in union in the very presence of God. Yeah, and it's actually, uh, we can have a deep sense of gratitude that despite the horrors that sometimes are characteristic of human life, that it really is a blessing to be human. And it's a particular, this idea of it being a journey, that, um, you know, not minimizing the suffering of this world and death, 
But uh, there is an amazing destination in our future. Yeah, and we're in it together. All my bags are packed, I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. But the dawn is breaking, it's early morn. The taxi's waiting, he's blown his horn. Already I'm so lonesome I could die. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. times I let you down So many times I played around And I tell you now They don't mean a thing Every place I go I'll think of you Every song I sing I'll sing for you When I come back I'll bring your wedding ring So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go Time's come to leave you One more time Let me kiss you Close your eyes I'll be on my way Dream about the days to come When I won't have to leave alone About the times I won't have to say smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go to go